Hello again, and welcome to our Governing Health Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Peregrine. We're pleased to have you with us. Let's start with the obvious today. COVID concerns continue to dominate the boardroom agenda, whether they relate to patient care and safety, patient access to care, understaffing and the dwindling labor supply, or concerns with healthcare worker and even management fatigue. Just as with every other hierarchy within the healthcare provider, there's literally no break on the board agenda for the COVID-weary board. And despite hints of optimism in the media lately, it looks like it's way too early for the board to return to the pre-pandemic agenda. Much remains on their plate to address. And discuss what those issues might be is our old friend, Jamie Orlikoff. As many of you know, Jamie is president of Orlikoff & Associates, Inc., a consulting firm specializing in healthcare governance and leadership, strategy, quality, patient safety, and organizational development. Jamie is the National Advisor on Governance and Leadership to the American Hospital Association and Health Board. Jamie has been involved in leadership, quality, and strategy issues for over 40 years. He's consulted with hospitals and systems in 12 countries, and he's written 15 books and over 100 articles and has served on hospital, college, and civic boards. Jamie's currently the chair of the board of the St. Charles Health System in Bend, Oregon. Jamie, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here as always. Jamie, as, as we speak today, the public dialogue is essentially the same as when we last had you on the program in March of 2021, all COVID, all the time. The, some of the topics are different, uh, but ultimately, I think it's important as we start our conversation, as I recall, you predicted when we last spoke, many of the events that we're experiencing today. So we're really excited to get your input on some of the more challenging pandemic-related issues uh, which our mutual clients are dealing with. So let me pick it, uh, start off with a big picture issue, and that kind of relates as we've evolved or may be evolving from a pandemic to endemic, uh, the failures of predictive anal analytics and dealing with the variants. And what are the lessons we should learn from recent history as we, or maybe some of the experts, are predicting the end of the pandemic? Well, the first lesson is drawn from the great philosopher Yogi Berra, who said predictions are difficult, especially about the future. When we look back, what we see is pretty much anyone who went out on a limb and made a prediction about COVID was wrong. And I very much appreciate your graciousness in suggesting that, that I somehow was right. But I think what we experienced was that, that pessimism is a very, very good proxy for prescience these days. When you have a choice, just pick the more, you know, more negative outcome and you're more likely to be right than wrong. And kind of with that as background, I think what we've learned and what we're still learning is that there is no roadmap for this. And that's especially true when we think about different variants uh, of COVID. What um, people on the provider side have learned to their chagrin is that really good predictive analytics based on the most recent variant are not valid for whatever variant that you're experiencing right now. And what we've come to recognize is you can call it COVID, but Omicron was very different than Delta. Delta was very different than Alpha. They're different disease processes. And so they have, you know, we, we kind of fell into the trap of, of normalization and, and recency bias, thinking that the, the previous variant, you know, would be predictive of the current variant. And it wasn't. You know, so for example, what we're experiencing today when we chat is hopefully approaching a peak in Omicron. 
but once again, it's a rolling crisis. So it may be peaking in the Northeast, but it's it, it's not even approaching peak in many, many communities in the country, specifically uh, rural communities. So the worst is yet to come uh, for many parts of the country. The worst hopefully is over for some parts of the country. Um, and we try to come up with standards which apply all around the country to all variants. To complicate it, you know, as you know, Michael, we don't just have Omicron, we're still seeing Delta. So, and we're not doing a whole lot of meaningful genetic sequencing so that our ability to say what we're experiencing isn't as, uh, you know, isn't as focused as it needs to be. So, you know, if, if predictive analytics are going to work, you have to have good data. And, and, you know, we're always playing catch up on the data. But going back to one comment earlier, here's another example of where we were wrong. Uh, people suggested to your comment about moving from pandemic to endemic that Omicron would do this because it was more transmissible, more contagious, but less virulent, that it didn't make people as sick. But if you look at the data that just is out today, uh, we have had as of end of January 2022, as many Omicron deaths as we had deaths due to Delta. So, you know, so th this really then raises the question, what indicators are we looking at? Is it is it infection? Is it hospital admission? Is it ICU admission? Is it mortality? And which of these indicators are most meaningful going forward? Um, so it's a it's it's a mess, Michael. It's a soup, and you can take a look at the data, and you can make pretty much any prediction you want, but you're likely to be caught short unless it's a fairly pessimistic prediction. So I don't mean to be any more depressing than I normally am, but that's kind of the perspective that I have. So when we think about this in the context of will Omicron usher in the end of the pandemic and usher in the beginning of the endemic, you know, we need to understand that that the United States is the tip of the spear in this. And and, you know, where variants of the virus percolate are in unvaccinated populations that haven't had a significant exposure to uh, previous variants of the virus. And what we have just described is large parts of the rest of the world. So the, the great unknown is where is a variant percolating in some other corner of the world, which could then surprise us. And we don't know. We just don't know. So hopefully we're, you know, we're going to have a, a high enough degree of immunity and hopefully we're going to have a high enough degree of vaccination that we're out of the woods. But I wouldn't bet on it. I mean, I'm just afraid that, you know, what we're going to continue to experience is this surge recover whipsaw where we experience a crisis and then that particular crisis abates and we enter a period of uh, normalcy where we attempt to recover and then and then some other type of vir viral driven crisis um, uh, occurs. So I know that's not a really, you know, happy or exciting perspective, but that's what we've been living with for the past 2 years and I don't really see any reason to think that that trend is going to change in the uh, in the next 12 months. Well Jamie, this why I want to pick up on another topic I I think you and I have been reading the same material uh, recently in the New York Times deal book uh, raised the subject about whether businesses should begin planning for learning to live or the normalization of COVID. Uh, and also Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel has made some very prominent uh, publications and presentations through the Washington Post on the question of what does it look like to adjust to a living with COVID environment. What does that mean to you? What does the concept of normalization of COVID mean from your perspective? Is it realistic? Should we be thinking that way? Does Dr. Emanuel have it correct? I Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would love to think so. I mean, I think what that's, what that's based on is the notion of um, going from pandemic to endemic, where 
we don't just learn to live with COVID with such a high mortality rate. I mean, so let's consider, I mean, let's consider this first of all, how do you live with the current state? One out of every 100 Americans over the age of 65 uh, has died because of COVID. A 1% mortality rate is really nothing short of a definition of a biological die-off. One out of every 450 Americans has died of COVID. If that mortality rate continues, how do you normalize that? I mean, it's very difficult to think of any society in history that's dealt with that for any extended period of time. If the thinking, on the other hand, is it becomes endemic, meaning it's with us, it's seasonal, the mortality rate is significant, but nowhere near what we're experiencing today. And Michael, as you know, as you and I are talking today, we're averaging almost 2,000 deaths a day uh, due to COVID. You know, when we think about endemic illness, we're talking about things like the flu, where a really bad flu season will give you maybe 30,000 deaths. So I don't think we can normalize the, you know, the experience that we're having right now unless we really uh, kind of redefine society and how, how it operates. And that's kind of what we've done, but we've done it on an ad hoc basis, you know, unless we you know, destroy public gathering places and, and, and move all of retail to, a, to an online format. And we just really reconceptualize society. I, I really don't see how we can normalize the current situation. Now, if we're talking about it moving to endemic, then yes, then I think we can, where we recognize, look, COVID's not going to go away. You know, we're never going to be immune to it. It's always going to be mutating. And we're going to get a, a vaccination once a year or twice a year, which will not necessarily prevent infection, but hopefully will minimize the risk of being hospitalized or minimize the risk of mortality. And then recognize that for the, you know, the over 65 population and the immunocompromised population, there will be higher mortality rates. That possible normalization, I think, is much more likely and much more realistic. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. But Jamie, in the boardroom, you know, we have different perspectives. And you pick up on your last thought. We are both in the boardrooms on a regular basis, either in person or, or virtually. And we see the fatigue. We see the stress. We see their concerns as to when this is going to end. What is your message to board members with respect to where it is reasonable for them to see their institution on the line from pandemic to endemic? What is appropriate for them in terms of a rational, middle of the round view in terms of where we stand right now? Excellent question. And I think, you know, going back to the comment made earlier about, you know, mortality lagging infection rates, and that's what we're seeing now. It's important for, you know, hospital and health system boards to understand that the, the crisis may be over you know, in air quotes for general society well before it's over for hospitals. So I think the the notion of going to endemic um, from a, a hospital or health system boardroom planning perspective is folly at this point. And I think that the appropriate approach is uh, to manage the whipsaw, to anticipate that there will be subsequent surges and recessions in whatever variant that we're dealing with. And that for the foreseeable future, the great challenge that, that boards are going to have you know, is working with their clinical leaders and their managers to to manage the whipsaw, to to you know use their data, both you know their their less useful you know predictive analytics based on on past surges, and their current data, so that they can determine when they need to think about suspending you know scheduled or elective procedures, when they think about need to uh, needing to implement crisis standards of care, and whether they need to modify those crisis standards of care. And then equally importantly, when they're over the hump of a current surge, 
Uh, when do they begin to relax? When are they confident enough to um, start to reschedule, you know, elective procedures or schedule procedures? And and so this this re I mean sensitivity to operations is going to be really the key. I don't see a diminishment in this notion of the surge recover website. It may flatten a bit, and that and that may be over time what endemic means for uh, for hospital and health system boards. But in the short term, that's the, the reality that we're in, that's the reality that we've been in, and that's the reality that I think they're going to be in for the foreseeable future. And, and by sensitivity to operations, I mean, they're really gonna have to think about uh, lots of issues. One of which, Michael, is an, an example of, um, you know, the implications of, you know, of, uh, new standards on hospital care and risk and the ability to open up. You know, you you may remember that fairly recently back on December uh, 27th, the CDC shortened the, um, you know, the uh, required isolation or quarantine time for healthcare workers who'd been exposed or, or diagnosed with COVID from 10 days to five days. And, and that was wonderful because it helped get the workforce back. The problem is, uh, if you look at a graph of in-hospital transmission, nosocomial transmission of COVID-19, meaning patients come to the hospital, they do not have COVID, and then they are diagnosed with COVID in the hospital. They were exposed to COVID in the hospital. If you look at that graph, it, it almost in a linear way went straight up on January 1st. So this is one of the things that boards are going to really have to struggle with. You know, can we safely go back to routine operations uh, what will the public perception be if we are, um, you know, if we are operating and doing full, you know, full scheduled surgeries, but, um, you know, it becomes known or feared in the community that if you go to the hospital, you'll get COVID. So managing all of these different variables is really what I mean about sensitivity to operations and, and not just hoping that things are going to go back to a kind of a flat curve of normal, but recognizing there are going to be these waves and you have to govern and manage within the context of the wave. I don't really see that going away in the, in the, in the midterm. Jamie, I want to go back to a phrase that you used a few minutes ago, the concept of tip of the spear. Uh, what did you mean by that? And, and how, what are its implications for healthcare and perhaps the broader societal implications? Well, I, I think it's a phrase, it's a polite phrase, a more challenging, but perhaps more accurate phrase would be canary in the coal mine. But one of the things that we're seeing is that, as, as has been the case for many years, hospitals and health systems really kind of represent the, the front line of what's going on in society. And that's that's been magnified by the pandemic. So, you know, the politicalization of, of vaccination is an example. You know, you can debate it, people can write angry letters to the newspapers, but hospitals are living it and they struggle with this when they see in their communities vaccine hesitancy result in, you know, high, high COVID admissions, high mortalities, you know, when unvaccinated people represent the majority of, uh, of consumption of, you know, intensive care resources and so on. By the same token, you see the challenges when you're dealing with vaccine mandates at the, at the hospital level. And perhaps most recently, you know, the great resignation, the workforce challenge. And well, so number one, this was kind of hinted at, you know, in healthcare long before it was uh, understood in general society. We've talked about a nursing shortage or an impending shortage of primary care physicians inside of healthcare for years. Uh, now suddenly, the Great Resignation, you know, is is recognized throughout all of society and impacting 
across professions and across service areas. And, and it kind of started with healthcare, but it's also being magnified in healthcare. So we were struggling with workforce issues. And now as society begins to struggle with them, they become a crisis for healthcare. So I think I think any any major issue that you take a look at in society, uh, you know, what's what's another example right now? Loss of trust. If we can't trust our leaders, if we can't trust communication, what about loss of trust in in, in hospitals? And what's an example of this? One of the things that we're seeing around the country as a result of COVID is uh, you know significant wait times for access to hospitals for emergencies, for crises. People get in car accidents, they have heart attacks. And you're beginning to see headlines in the newspapers about people dying because they could not access healthcare. Well, let's think about this in the context of trust. You know, I have paid my Medicare premiums all my life. I've paid my health insurance premiums. And now when I need healthcare, I can't get it. I didn't do anything wrong. And I and maybe I even got a vaccination. Uh, but because of whatever is going on, I can't get the care that I was promised. So is there a quid pro quo there? And is that is that being violated from some perspective? So, you know, it's not a very long walk from that to people beginning to think, well, if I can't, if I can't get health care, why am I paying for it? Um, what have I paid for all these years? And why, you know, why are rising health care costs constraining my ability to live in other aspects? So that's just one example. But I think when we look at uh, the issues that society is dealing with, we see them both kind of first predicted in the healthcare space, but then as they become manifest throughout society, we see them become magnified in the healthcare space. And that's, I think, a lot of what we're struggling with now, uh, allocation of resources, crisis standards of care, workforce issues, and then the broader issue of, of trust. Can I trust that, you know, that healthcare resources will be there when I need them? And if I can't, how shall I behave going forward? Uh, so, so I don't know if that makes any sense, Michael, but that's really what I was thinking when I when I kind of think about healthcare as the tip of the spear. In that regard, Jamie, do you see any risk of ultimately a political or, or governmental intervention to answer the questions of what did I do wrong? I paid in all these things. What's the, uh, is there an extreme response to this if it becomes a political issue? Well, I think it's a political issue now, and we're already seeing the extreme responses. I mean, you know, the the crisis standards of care issue. The, you know, the government, you know, has really through its you know significant regulations, you know, tied the hands of clinical leaders and ethical leaders in hospitals to establish crisis standards of care. For example, many people are unaware, but you know, crisis standards of care have to factor in American with Disability Act definitions. So you cannot use age. When you're making your determination, you know, you, you, you have to use this very, very specific standard likelihood of surviving this hospital stay. And, and what that means is if physicians are looking at rationing the care, you know, you have two people who need a ventilator. There's only one ventilator available. One of them is a 22 year old mother. The other is a 75 year old uh, you know, individual who has underlying conditions. But that, per, but they both have equal chances of surviving this, uh, you know, uh, this this hospital stay. Um, you know, it, it's just very challenging. And physicians say there's no way in the world I, I wouldn't consider age in that situation. So we're already seeing, you know, the, the government kind of step in, and and unfortunately, it's having the effect of tying the hands. Your question, I think, is appropriate: is is at what point does the crisis, you know, go beyond healthcare and become so? known to the American public. 
that the government has to step in and, and try to uh, reallocate healthcare resources or give some types of guarantee. And that may be nothing less than the nationalization of, of healthcare, the nationalization of hospitals. And, you know, that's happened to a certain extent. I mean, you know, the uh, uh, hospitals were basically federalized under, you know, under the Social Security regs during the pandemic with incident command structures and and government requirements. Uh, and that's not really well known throughout the country. So it's it's not a great leap from that to, you know, to something else. But that one, I'm not even going to hazard a pessimistic prediction. Um, you know, we'll have to see. But if things continue the way they're going, and if you start seeing people saying, you know, if, if I can't if I can't be guaranteed, you know, of access to healthcare services that I'm paying for, I'm not going to pay for them anymore. Um, that could be the, you know, the, the kind of straw that breaks the camel's back and force, you know, force some, you know, reconceptualization uh, and and perhaps nationalization of healthcare. I don't know. Um, you know, we'll see. But if things continue the way they're going. Uh, there, there, there clearly will be some type of straw that breaks the back, and then the question is, what will the response be? Well, Jamie, you and I have talked in the past about the concept of the healthcare system's social voice, the the concept of is commerce generally, and there's a lot of discussion about it that, uh, last year and this year on certain issues of political significance or societal significance. The expectation that corporations will speak out and, and through their CEO or their board chair and share their views, in part because of the uh, concept of corporate citizenship, in part because of a need to be responsive to the concerns of the workforce. Uh, do you see an active voice from healthcare system leaders on some of the societal and tip of the spear issues that you've been identifying? Would you recommend it? How do you see that discussion going? Because we see yeah, I think some of the surveys most recently have suggested that for the for regular business, consumers are saying, you know, we don't really want to hear from you on your views on election uh, legislation or what's in front of the Supreme Court. We want you to do a good job of providing a service to us. It's a little bit different, it seems, in the healthcare industry, which, which the delivery of healthcare services is the number one issue of the day. How do you see this corporate social voice playing out there? So it's a great question. It's very complex. And take your last point, you know, which is if the public just says, look, we don't want you involved in these issues. We just want you to provide services. What happens when the provision of services is significantly compromised because there is a, a silence in, in, in these areas? And we've already seen this happen around the country. You've seen health systems take out full page ads and take out commercial time on television, basically with a message, help us help you. You know, we, we cannot provide you services that you need because we're being inundated with COVID patients, the vast majority of whom are unvaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Now, on the face of it, that's completely appropriate. The problem is when, when you politicize science, when you politicize these issues, it becomes very difficult for uh, health system or hospital leaders to step in uh, without putting their foot in, in in political issues and then raising the ire of uh, you know of significant portions of their community. But services have already been compromised, and I think that's the conundrum: is you know is if they just you know uh, if if hospital healthcare leaders just hang back and wait, uh, and and no one in their community is is uh, is kind of sounding the alarm about the crisis that they're experiencing. Uh, or taking a stand, um, they you know they're, they're looking at a very uncertain and, and negative future. So I think that's why many of them are stepping in. They're filling a void, a necessary void that they see politically in their communities, 
to address the ability to provide services. So I think they're being kind of pulled in because of a vacuum. And I think it's creating a, a new role for healthcare leaders. It's creating a, a community communications role, which has to be based. And the way I've seen it work, and it seems to be working reasonably well, is an unbiased source of information. You know, this is based on science, but um, here's what we need from you if you want us to be there to provide services when you need them. Um, and so, yeah, I think we're starting to see that much more aggressively than we would have anticipated in the past. Uh, some health systems got into it early, and those tended to be in the heavily uh, politically polarized communities. The ones who got into it a little bit later were the ones who got into it when they started to be overwhelmed, and they did it as kind of a um, almost a last resort. But but more and more of, uh, of of healthcare leaders around the country are developing those types of communication strategies because they need to because they're being sucked in by the vacuum. Jamie, last question to you. Um, we're as we're doing this, we're in the middle of the first quarter of 2022. You're presenting to hospital board leadership and senior executive leadership. What are you projecting uh, in terms of key issues in these areas for the rest of the first quarter and going into the second quarter? What are the implications, the challenges for them that you think are front burner in terms of the entire pandemic position? Well, so several, and not a lot of them are, are optimistic. But first of all, I think we're going to start seeing an acceleration in the kind of waves of closures of rural hospitals around the country. They have been stressed pretty much more than uh, you know than any other uh, provider. Uh, secondly, I think we're going to see a patient safety crisis, um, and I think as we you know as we all embark on the rush to revenue to try to recapture some of the lost revenues because of you know, cancellations or delays of scheduled elective procedures, we're going to see this, you know, kind of a dual wave of people who have rationed their care, postponed getting care, presenting when they think it's safe. And then hospitals who, you know, are struggling with workforce shortages, you know, upset conditions, uh, different equipment, teams that aren't used to working with one another, trying to, you know, trying to make up for lost time. I think you're going to see a, a major safety issue emerge. And I think that needs to be uh, kind of foremost in the minds of leaders, which is we, we need to recognize that resumption of services um, will not be like riding a bike. It's not like, you know, you, you just hop back on and it comes right back to you. These in, in safety speaker, what are known as upset conditions. And I think just as we've been seeing, as we're seeing a big increase in hospital-acquired COVID infections, I, I think we're going to start seeing other, other uh, safety profiles. In line with that, I think the next thing we're going to see is accountability for an increase in overall mortality rate and some type of a reckoning. We're seeing really odd statistics. You know, the overall non-COVID mortality rate increased in 2020 and 2021. We're seeing, you know, seemingly diametrically opposed trends, uh, fewer cars on the road, but an increase in traffic mortalities. Uh, a rise in violence, a rise in murders. And, you know, and when you go back to the pre-pandemic rhetoric of healthcare, which is population health, and we we need to do more than simply take care of people once they get sick, we need to take care of the population. Hospitals are going to have to confront and health systems are going to have to confront that. And, and does that rhetoric still make sense? Or do we have to redefine our role and say, you know what, we don't have the resources to keep our populations healthy? to deal with drug overdoses, to deal with the socioeconomic 
variables which are increasing the murder rate and so on. So we're just going to pull back and focus on really providing excellent hospital-based sickness care. Or are they going to say, look, you know, the only way to address all of these issues is to double down on the population health perspective and figure out ways of assuming more risk so that we can be much more aggressive uh, in, in doing what we said we were going to do, which is, you know, assess the health care needs of the community, go in there and respond to them. And I think it's going to force a choice because I think the data is going to be so damning that it's going to make it very, very difficult to, you know, to use rhetoric that doesn't have a lot of reality behind it. Uh, so I think those are going to be some of the major challenges. And a big one, which I just touched on, is going to be workforce. I think one of the major, major challenges we're going to see is post-crisis workforce um, uh, you know, workforce declines. Uh, you know, you typically in, in a post-traumatic stress disorder environment don't see the real manifestation of PTSD until the battle is over, until the crisis has passed. The battle is not over and the crisis has not passed for hospitals. So once it is over, then I think we're going to see um, you know, significant workforce challenges, not just on the frontline workers, Michael, but I'm starting to see thousand-yard stairs you know, in the eyes of chief executive officers, chief medical officers, vice presidents of human resources, um, you know, and, and describing it like being in pitched battles. And I'm afraid that we're going to really start to see a hollowing out of, uh, of, of frontline workers, um, but also our executive uh, workers and our clinical leaders. So those, I think, are going to be, you know, some of the, the, the laundry list of implications that we're going to be talking about in subsequent podcasts. Jamie, I'm not going to trivialize your uh, comments and your themes by asking you to give us a uh, takeaway note of optimism. I think you are laying out to the hospital boards, executives, general counsel who are listening in to this conversation some very bitter truths, some very significant concerns, which are so relevant to the discourse around the boardroom in person or virtual right now that this is by no means uh, uh, the outlook is by ability to return to normal, that there are some very, very significant issues that the board must contemplate on a continuing basis. I suspect you feel throughout much of 2022, and maybe we'll have a different conversation this time next year. But for now, let's leave it as that, not delve into the area of optimism, hope, expectations, sunshine. That's not a message you're delivering today, my friend. No. Well, there, if there is one, here, here's what it is. Let's remember Winston Churchill's great quote, never let a good crisis go to waste. Now, most people know that part of the quote, but they forget the second part. Uh, you know, And what he really said was never let a good crisis go to waste. It's an opportunity to do things you couldn't do before. So if there is an optimistic note here, it's, you know, uh, healthcare leaders should look at that. Here's an opportunity to if, if you want to be in charge of the health of the community to really, you know, double down on those efforts. Here's an opportunity to, you know, redesign the healthcare model. Here's an opportunity to leverage the things that you've had to do in response to the crisis, like telehealth or, or remote patient monitoring or hospital at home care. It's, you know, so, so we don't want to use the anchor of going back to normal. Uh, if there is an optimistic note here, it's, hey, great, we've had a crisis and, you know, and it, and it buffeted us and maybe, you know, threatened uh, to destroy us. But but if we survived, let's let's take advantage of it. Let's push. Let's be very aggressive in the prosecution of our agendas. To me, that's the optimistic note here, Michael. Well, from Yogi Berra to Winston Churchill, the platform and the perspective of Jamie Orlikoff, which we appreciate as always. 
I think that uh, for our listeners today, uh, take some notes uh, and kind of let's hold Jamie and see if, if he is as accurate today as he was a year ago. And I think the answer will be, you bet. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure, Michael. Thank you. Well, if you were looking for a bolt of optimism concerning the future of the pandemic, this ain't the podcast for you. As he normally does, Jamie Orlikoff gets to the heart of the matter in terms of the continuing COVID challenges for healthcare provider boards of directors. But on the journey from pandemic to endemic, there'll be many more bumps and detours to confront. Managing the whipsaw, as Jamie describes it, but it's a message that we all need to hear and that Jamie believes boards of directors can still address. Thanks so much for joining us for today's episode of Governing Health. Be sure to subscribe to the full complimentary podcast series. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. There you'll be able to stay up to date with all of our future issues and to re-listen to the old ones. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Peregrine, saying thanks so much for listening. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, distribution or republication without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.